it's possible, I know, to be reduced to bits of energy. It's happening to me right now. You're listening to my voice as my personal energy is being absorbed and translated into simple patterns of ones and zeros, two numbers switching back and forth that, once read by a device full of plastics and metal, can translate my presence, capture it, and make it infinitely playable. Or at least until the computational instructions change. Or we change. Or the Earth finally washes itself clean of humanity and a new era begins. But what happens in those fractional moments of translation? What takes place in the infinitesimal space where my voice leaves my body and enters into a system? Loss. It may be only a moment of a moment, but it's enough for decay to take root. The greater the intervention, the more it creeps. But just the act alone is enough to spawn wild tendrils of decay. My voice, no longer mine, is extracted, broken down into digital packets of bits, and in doing so, starts to fade. One may wince at the sound of your own voice being played back to you, because it doesn't resonate in your ears the same way it resonated in your being. But that reaction may also be the experience of encountering yourself outside of yourself. And if you're no longer there, what are you? What is that? It's a strange thing, being flattened and magnetized, sealed into thin strips of plastic tape. Oh, passage of myself thinking and speaking spread across particles of ferric oxide, running through plastic cogs, turned from nothing to something again. Sometimes rushing and fast-forward, sometimes distorted and slow, my energy played back at different speeds. We have the Germans to thank for perfecting the technology and for naming an early recording device the magnetophone. Their first real attempt at recording to magnetic tape had issues. Loss. Always loss. Weird stretches where the audio wobbled and ducked, bending under the weight of so much information. Possible it was hard to contain all that human energy. The genius of the composer Mozart, captured by hand with ink set to paper, turned into notations with suggestions of volume and tempo. That work, copied multiple times, published, distributed, folded into sheets and bound, then placed carefully onto music stands so that the arrangement of notes could be read and turned into sound, each moment influenced by the energy of the individual musician from different walks of life, all having different sorts of days. Proud members of the London Philharmonic, guided by the experienced baton of the conductor Sir Thomas Beecham, already 57 years old in November of 1936, when the orchestra decided to experiment with the magnetophone. The machine propped up on a table or makeshift station, someone nervously standing by checking wires and watching to make sure the tape moves smoothly across metal spools. When they heard the playback, all those energies intertwined they were disappointed. This is what they heard.
They were unhappy with their own voices, their own musical expression, their own life patterns reflected back to them but altered, less than the lived experience. But what happens when an imperfect recording is all that remains of a person's voice, a distant echo of a life? And what if you discovered a tape in a box that you had no idea existed, or did once but forgot because of so much time passing? And what if the voice on that tape was of your own mother, a voice you hadn't heard in more than a quarter of a century? Well, let's push play and see what happens when we slide into the VHS deck that reveals itself to be a portal to hidden worlds, a gateway to the deep night. It's me, Dale Seaver, your host for another auditory journey through the 4 a.m. hour. It's autumn. The leaves are mixing in with the detritus of New York City and blowing in swirling gusts near the curbs and over corroded manhole covers. The green paint flakes and falls away from the lampposts above the subway entrances. A lone squirrel shivers atop a backyard telephone wire. The season of change is upon us. The hands of the clock wound back for some reason, a last gasp attempt to rob light from the darkness. Probably it's time to throw out those pumpkins you purchased before they start to sag and get soft around their bottoms. I can't be the only one who left their gourds out far too long and then discovered how rotten they'd become when the cut-off vine of its top, the pumpkin handle, simply rests away from the body of the thing, leaving a pulpy, damp wound that starts to fold in on itself. It can be a time of remembering how quickly things can slip away, like a rotten pumpkin or an oak leaf curled brown and brittle. No wonder we look forward to receiving new things at the end of the year, from now until then just building and maintaining anticipation with various peppermint-flavored coffees and hits of wonder mixed with nostalgia. The enactment and installation of ritual objects and meals meant to conjure joy in bleak times. Each moment etched into the memory like a sound wave into magnetic substrate or carved into wax cylinders. I was thinking about vinyl records the other day. The difference between that process and the process of making a tape or how sound works when captured digitally. I thought again about the sounds of the earth, and since vinyl records capture sound prints in tiny grooves, subtle vibrations of needle to hard substance, would it be possible to make a record of the grooves of the earth? If you could map the Grand Canyon or the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the ocean, could you etch those same grooves into a record and then 
put it on the hi-fi, send its ancient sound through bound copper cable and out through the speakers, the same speakers you heard the Beatles through, the ones shielded behind foam covering flecked with little reflective pieces of gold, somehow making all sounds magical, whether it was Mickey Mouse Disco or Peter the Wolf or Little Drummer Boy, which everyone hates but you love because it was the first song you remember from the record player and it only played near Christmas when it was time for gifts and everyone seemed to be excited. Well, not everyone. Dad didn't like it for some reason. Didn't like the mess, the work, the needles that fell from the tree, the candles and the risk of burning it all down. Probably it meant seeing people or gathering together and he didn't like it or didn't want to go and so he just muttered under his breath or slinked away to the basement or the garage. But you knew because you were of him and wanted to know him. So it was impossible not to know even if you couldn't comprehend exactly the dimensions of his anxious nature. But what would the recording of the Grand Canyon sound like? Could you also play the moon, the dark side of the moon? If you played the dark side of the moon backwards, would it just be a Led Zeppelin album? Could you sync any of them to an old VHS copy of The Wizard of Oz? Well, it turns out the Flat Earth Society, of all societies, has made an attempt at turning the topography of the Earth into well, not quite music, mostly scratches and blips, a staticky voyage across the planet's terrain that one could probably achieve just by scratching the hell out of an existing little drummer boy record and letting it play. Or maybe it's just too disappointing to hear one's own planet energies played back. Too small a format to capture all that. A canyon as groove is not groovy, but depressing and can only be read as fuzz. Total distortion from beauty to nothingness. The larger the scale, the bigger the energy, the greater the loss. Maybe. Maybe. And it took me almost three, three and a half years to find someone that was actually doing what I needed. That is the voice of my mother. Six seconds worth. No other recording of her exists as far as I know. She may have made it onto another unlabeled cassette in a box, or maybe she darts into frame on an unmarked videotape that needs a special adapter to play. If there is another tape, it's on the verge of extinction, soon to be unplayable. Turns out that the format of capturing audio and video has loss built into it. We fool ourselves into thinking that digital is the answer because it too will cease to be viable at some point. Some of it will make it, but not all. Just as not all knowledge gets handed down, not all history is complete. Our human stories, rituals, methods of beating back the darkness is not lossless technology. The library at Alexandria burned too. When a generation passes on, it is impossible for the next generation to retain all that once was. We select, we edit, we toss out, we mangle the truth to fit our experience. We make it square with our memory of what happened from our perspective. Even if someone keeps all the parts and all the instructions, keeps meticulous books filled with all of their receipts, keeps trunks loaded with childhood projects and papers and clothing and toys and toothbrushes and watches and spare buttons and coins. There may not be space in the new person's life to take all of that on, and so not all of it makes it. Not all of it gets put on that boat to sail into the new world. Even Noah left some animals behind. 
And it took me almost three, three and a half years to find someone that was actually doing what I needed. The idea for recording sound to tape was birthed into the world in 1877 thanks to an American named Oberlin Smith, who, after being introduced to the innovations of Thomas Edison earlier that same year, went about trying to embed steel dust into strands of thread. Later experiments by others would try paper tape, then plastic, but in every iteration, the medium, laced with iron oxide in its earliest days, was subject to decay. Magnetic tape recordings risk having their information torn apart by rust, lack of adhesion, chemical breakdown, too much heat or moisture, too little, a plastic cassette left in the car changes the bond, warped by natural energies it cannot control. The cassette itself can be broken, smashed, twisted, or shredded, and pulled into great shiny tangles. Another magnet can undo all that the original magnet had planned. Energies always moving in all directions toward entropy. Even this is temporary. Video home system tapes worked on the same principle as Smith's original idea. And in the 1950s, a Tennessean named Beverly R. Gooch figured out a way to capture images to magnetic tape using a floor-to-ceiling device fashioned together from vacuum tubes, wires, and metal reels. The first image he made was a hazy apparition of a scene that had just occurred, a phantom that could be replayed and replayed again, never improving in quality but a marvel just the same. The pulses harnessed that day made it possible for me to see and hear my mother for the first time in more than 25 years. It was in a plastic bin with a bunch of other VHS tapes, an assortment of store-bought Hollywood classics, low-quality footage of high school musicals, speaking contests, a direct from TV transfer of a miniseries or special, remarkable only for the pre-streaming unskippable commercials, tiny time capsules of products and fashions that have long since gone away or come back and gone away again. The spine of the tape was labeled in handwriting I knew as my own, Mom on TV! Exclamation mark. We must have known it was going to air and then set the VCR to record, watching cautiously to make sure it worked, that the red light went on when it was supposed to, that we could hear the low whir of the tape advancing, lurching across the recording head. I was not looking for this, it appeared. Were it not for a cousin's insistence on watching every VHS tape we found while clearing out my parents' house, the format a novelty to his generation, a fascination with liminal spaces and the degraded aesthetic of non-digital technology, coupled with a curiosity for old high school performances, led us to buy the necessary dongles and cables to get the VCR running again, allowing for it to send its signal to the newer but still old television set. It was a full segment from the morning television program AM Philadelphia. Hosted by local personalities Wally Kennedy and Liz Starr, the show ran for years on Channel 6, the greatest local news station that ever was, notable for its main newscaster's glorious mustache 
a news van that seemed to almost take on human characteristics, and its absolute banger of a theme song, known as the unofficial anthem of the city of brotherly love. Now, you might think that that was the theme from Rocky, but you'd be wrong. It's the action news theme, Move Closer to Your World, composed in 1970 by Walt Liss with lyrics by Al Hamm. Ham also put together the musical group that sang the Coca-Cola jingle, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, enlisting the help of his wife and daughter in this quasi-manufactured folk group, the Hillside Singers. That song would reach number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. The action news theme is forever in the number one position of my personal chart. I think I've even played it on the show before, but it's worth revisiting again and again. I've made it my ringtone. It's a beautiful song in its way, better than a newscast theme has any right to be. The extended version really brings it home. Just a little bit of time. That's all it takes to bring your world together. Don't turn away, my friend. Tomorrows are forever. Get close to people. Your world needs you to care, to share it. You see how that Coke ad was a good fit for the hillside singers in Alham. Lots of caring and sharing and holding hands. You know, like the news. Channel 6 WPVI managed to have the heart and soul of Philadelphia TV watchers. Somehow they tapped directly into the cheesesteak-clogged veins of every person in that city, and they produced shows that were loved and relied on. There is a rich history of programming designed by local affiliates around the country. Often they were shows designed to fulfill an educational mandate or were put on simply because they were cheap to produce. Usually it featured an adult in a costume moving around a colorful set. Well, you could imagine color in those early black and white days. And maybe a cartoon or a creature feature to get you good and spooked before bed. There were often almost exclusively gimmicks. A fuzzy-haired clown in Chicago, a curvaceous vampire in Los Angeles, a legion of folks taking uh, time to speak into the camera wearing one persona or another. A brotherhood that included a surprising number of captains, including Captains Cosmic, Chesapeake, Boston Woody, Q-11, Daryl, Briney, Glenn, and at least one skipper, Skipper Ryle, from the great state of Ohio. Now, on Channel 6, we had our own captain, along with a chief and a guy named Al. We also had a Larry, but he just played organ music for an hour before anyone was actually awake. These shows, they were on forever. Chief Halftown, a children's show hosted by Trainer or a Halftown, a member of the Seneca Nation who appeared in full native regalia every week. Captain Noah and his Magical Ark, a cartoon and puppet show hosted by a former Philadelphia police chaplain and Lutheran minister, along with his wife, dressed as if they were about to set sail across the Delaware. A showcase for school-age dancers and singers hosted by Al Alberts, a white-haired former crooner with frequent drop-ins by his producer wife, who always looked as if she could and would take you in a fight. It's strange that even by the time I encountered them, this group of hosts were distant echoes of what they were meant to represent, the relevance fading the longer they appeared on screen. 
as if the more they recorded, like making aimless photocopies of photocopies, the less recognizable they were becoming, their specific details getting murkier with every Sunday morning. By the 1980s, cowboys and Indians had lost out to robots and he-men. Chief Halftown, who was only ever his authentic self and whose importance would perhaps better be appreciated in the current moment, represented at that early time a nod to the past, to our parents' childhood, not ours. Captain Noah, with a voice like a pillow, gentle and kind, was dressed like a version of a version of a captain. Not modern, not recent, more fairy tale than real, and on a plywood boat with visible seams of the television studio floor and walls, it was a simulation that was like a vessel adrift, claiming nostalgia for a time that never existed yet still permeated by loss, and Al Alberts was like a smiling wraith, death entwined in the stitches of his tuxedo, coiling around the long stem of his microphone, slinking into the dye job of his pompadour, becoming visible as white streaks, aging, overcoming. You can hear things breaking apart with each note of every strained duet with a six-year-old propped up on a piano belting out bushel and a peck. Al had a few hits, had been a star once, and now this second, third act was his unraveling, the way of all things that remain for too long. The more time something has, the greater loss becomes, maybe. Still, I always found it reassuring that they were on. It made no sense, but there they were. Even watching things fall apart, Around them they were steady, they were there, a copy of a copy of a copy, but still not completely gone. AM Philadelphia started airing during the heyday of news magazines sometime in the early 1980s. All had in-depth enough segments about topics of national interest with some kind of local relevance. The two hosts of AM Philadelphia, Liz and Wally, two names that seemed pulled from a big book of made-up names of local TV hosts, would sometimes let their egos get ahead of the subject, pressing too hard, not pressing enough. It was a show that mostly reached people stuck at home, kids on sick days or playing with the sound off in a hotel lobby or at a car repair shop while you waited for a new air filter you almost certainly did not need. I'm not exactly sure when my mother got sick the first time. I think it was eighth grade, maybe ninth. I remember her telling me and then me imagining what lymph nodes were. I'm still not sure, but I have a picture in my mind, something that looks like those thick seaweed stalks that wash up on the beach with round, bulbous bulges every few inches, glossy and sturdy. I picture them in her neck, around her collarbone. I could look it up, but I prefer not to. When she told me, the space behind my eyes got kind of fuzzy, a disconnect between my ears, lymph nodes, cancer, surgery. Honestly, I've not thought about this in so long. I can't remember the sequence of her demise. So focused have I been just on the loss. I've blanked on the steps that got her there. It's as mysterious to me as to how she got it in the first place. She never smoked, never used a microwave, didn't work in fiberglass or resins, or lived downwind of a nuclear power plant. I mean, any more than any of us do. Some parts of Pennsylvania are so nice and you'll look and see two giant plumes of steam rising above a gentle rolling landscape of perfect fall foliage and think, all right, that could melt down at any second. However she got it, it spread in this order, lymph, breast, spine, organs. 
I just don't recall what the treatments were in the early stages. She got it, it got her, and then she was gone. A phone call, it's over, I get there, we bury and cry and remember and then go on. Before she died, before we knew the extent of that final awful stretch, my father took me aside. We sat on the steps of the garage and he told me she had it again, that this time was worse, and he didn't know what to do. He cried, and we held each other, and it was one of the saddest moments of my entire life. We were both helpless. He knew what was going to happen, even if he tried to make it okay, coming up with ramps and railings and things to make the house easier to navigate if she couldn't walk. He could only bring what he had to this, and in the end, it wasn't enough. Somewhere in the middle of her years with cancer, because probably it never really left once it moved in, somewhere in there she found a support group for cancer survivors, or I guess people living with cancer. Post-treatment, she found a group in suburban Philadelphia led by a woman who was in remission who had lost a daughter to cancer. It was an exercise group for women who needed specialized movements because of tender arms or limbs and cautions from doctors about overextending. Now, I only know about this because of that VHS tape we found. When we put in the tape, it was somewhere in the middle. We rewound with the picture clicking off, the wheezing whir sound again of the cassette wheels spinning backwards, and we hit play. It took a couple of times to get to the right spot, but when I saw the back of her head, I knew it was her. Now, I had not seen her move or speak in so long, but I could tell by the cut of her hair, the angle of her shoulders, that it was my mother. Decades away from having to pick her out in a crowd, and I was able to do it again, ancient baby knowledge rushing back to me. And then there she was from the front, in her workout gear perfectly assembled, matching just so, a fit that she picked out for TV. But she would have looked put together on any occasion. She knew how to dress. She was on an exercise bike, which was amusing. Smiling, laughing with the others, going through a routine, and then it was just her on the screen, her face filling the frame, and her voice. And it took me almost three, three and a half years to find someone that was actually doing what I needed. It did not sound like her. Maybe we all don't like to hear ourselves in recordings. Maybe there is something lost in the translation to magnetic tape. Maybe the tape itself was warped after so much time in a bin. But whatever I thought her voice was, was not this. It almost had a New York accent to it. She lived in New York for like two years. That should not have been there. It was lower than I remembered, and just all around weird. Her face moved the way I thought it would, and to be honest, I saw a lot of me in her eyes and mouth, the way her glasses hung to a little bump that we both have in our noses. But the voice, I, I had to play it again, and again. At some point, it did start to become familiar. The cadence, its tone, still not quite right. A simulation pinging in the back of my brain, trying to recall all the times we spent talking to one another, me listening to her, driving, working, at parties, at dinners with friends. This voice that belonged to my father's great love. The voice that could get tight and sharp with anger or send curses flying with little provocation the voice that could soothe and comfort and laugh. When I hear the tape now, I don't think it's weird. I hear my mother. I have hazy access to all those other times of her speaking. 
The short clip reconnected some neural recognition pathways in my brain, long dormant, cobwebs swept away. A gift. And yet, so much loss. The recording here, that's a cell phone held up to a TV, playing a VHS tape pulled from a television broadcast sealed via chemical and magnetic processes, wrapped in a plastic case that has endured swings in temperature, changes in humidity, the pressure of other tapes against it, stored in a dark closet for 28 years of isolation. Her energy has been diffused, bent, warped, compressed. But something of it remains, just as something of the London Philharmonic remains in that first recording, just as a blurry, too bright outline of me as a teenage Professor Harold Hill is still recognizably me. These energy transfers are imperfect, but maybe the best we can hope for. Loss is built in, even without a method of capture. We age, we decay, we change from the time we say something to the moment we hear it. We unravel as surely as a ribbon of tape unspooled from its plastic case. So many instances of degradation make a life, and the bigger the energy, the larger the presence, the more palpable the loss. We want to hold on to it forever, put the cassette in a case and store it away to call back any time, to be able to summon the dead in an instant whenever we need it. Even an apparition, distorted, wavy, is better than nothing. But there is a realization in there that it is not it. And the name for that realization, I argue, is grief. It's hard to stay in it because it's acknowledging the terrible truth of something gone. I've not listened to that tape of my mother very much. I don't have the energy to revisit it time and again, to be shown so clearly what I already know so well and have lived with for so long. It's a blessing that the audio doesn't sound like her exactly. It's a good thing it's so short. It gives me space to do and feel other things. But I am grateful it exists. A little six seconds worth, an ember to breathe into and watch a light briefly. I've been fortunate to have many recordings of family members, not so many that they overwhelm, but recording was something that we did, usually audio a tape of my grandfather telling us his family history in Scotland, my own early attempts at radio shows spoken into my treasured portable tape machine with a little orange record button, or spoken into the small slats of the mic of my black radio cassette player, the one that got stolen, used for a night by a stranger, and then magically returned to me on a public bus in San Francisco. And while I only have this one snippet of audio of my mother, my father recorded many things audio postcards from Vietnam, interviews with me about his life and his own music, the lyrics of which were kept in a folder with a hand-collaged cover that read paper bag players and letters cut out and glued above a paper dove, all of it yellowed over time. My father wrote and played music for comfort, as a means to quiet the mind. This one he wrote from a place of great loss, of real grief, and it's only important for me to include it here as a means of joining the voice of my mother back to that of my father. For them to exist within the same context for the first time since her passing, to rejoin these two figures 
who in my hopes for whatever might count as eternal rest or reward have been reunited in some other realm, speaking, laughing, and singing again. Send whispers of times by your side Of loving you in spring and walks through summer tides Fresh fallen leaves and rolling in the snow I only hope the winds of whispers Never go. Dreams can't bring back yesterdays, but the memories have found the perfect place to stay. your shadow dance among the dunes. Nighttime comes, the shadows go, the dancing stops, why must you go so soon? Dreams can't bring back yesterday, but the memories have found a very special divine, you filled my life with gifts so fine, now I know where we go, I'll hear the whispers of time. The winds send whispers of time by your side, loving you in spring and walks through summertime, fresh fallen leaves and rolling in the snow, I only hope the winds of whispers never go. listen to that for a while. It can be 
You understand, tough to do. To hear his sadness come through so clearly, his deep affection for their life together expressed through his playing and voice, strong with emotion. This gentle soul laid bare. And that imperfect recording quality. He played this in the living room into some kind of contraption with lots of hiss and room tone. I had to edit it, compress it, filter out sounds that didn't need to be there, and yet still, it can't contain it all. We only have flawed means of holding on to something, which is probably, again, for the best. We can fill in for what's missing. That's the space for our own love for them to seep in, to make whole in our own ways. Whispers of time and shadows dancing, moving closer, send your pictures. It took me a while to find someone doing what I needed. Friends, as you gather with family or assorted groups of people who will have you at your dinner table, I hope you'll find time to appreciate one another. Look around and take a mental picture. Take a little bit of time. Hit record on your internal devices. When you need to recall this years later, it may not be perfect, but it will allow you to make it so in your own time. Thanks for opening up your audio holes for me once more this week. Till next time, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Send your pictures to dear old Captain Noah. Your colored pig will do the trick. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, performed, and written by James Bewley. Podcast theme by Via Mardot. Season artwork by Victor Bizar Gomez. Photography this season by Emma Mead. New website design by Maria Belen of Bella Mona Designs. All of these artists are wonderful and worth looking up and following on social media or hiring for your next great thing. For everything Dale and Deep Night, true denizens of the deep should visit deepnightshow.com or tune into the show on Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts can be found. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and follow Dale on Instagram at Dale Seaver. Thanks for paying a visit to the deep night. That was beautiful. Wasn't that beautiful?